it is quite difficult to know quite when to investigate. I, I think it's all down to the safety netting and a lot of things will get better in a week or two, but if they haven't, then we do need to think again. Hi, this is GP's Talk Cancer, brought to you by Gateway C. I'm Dr Rebecca Leon, and joining me through this podcast is Dr Sarah Taylor. We are both practising GPs and GP leads for Gateway C. We're both passionate about diagnosing cancer early, and in this podcast, we want to share our clinical experiences with you so you can make better, faster, and more confident cancer diagnosis in primary care. So there's some official stuff to make you aware of. We know this podcast might be of interest to anybody, but it is really aimed at primary care health professionals. And although all patient cases are based on real stories from our clinical practices, GPs, they are fully anonymised with no identifiable patient data. Gateway C is funded by the NHS and is part of the Christie NHS Foundation Trust. So, official bit done and dusted. The kettle is on and we're going to sit down with a coffee. With us today, alongside Sarah, we have Ellen, who's a junior doctor who works alongside us at Gateway C. And she's actually joining us from Scotland remotely. So, Sarah, how are you? How was your weekend? Good, thanks. I was off last week, so I'm just catching up from everything there. And, yeah, all good, thanks. Great. And Ellen, how's Scotland? Yeah, it's rainy and windy here, um, which is uh, typical. Um, but yeah, I quite like it. Great. Okay. So have you got a drink, both of you? Yeah. Okay. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about ovarian cancer. And it's important we throw some stats at this. This is fresh from the CRUK website. And an interesting finding was the incident rates in the UK for ovarian cancer are highest in women between the ages of 75 to 79. So those are the patients we should really consider, could this be a possible ovarian diagnosis? And the survival rate with ovarian cancer for living for 10 years or longer is around 35%. So there's still a lot of work to be done. So um, Sarah, let's go back to the cases. The first case we're going to be talking about is, I think it was a lady we're going to call Sylvia. Are you able to tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, so she came in to see me a few weeks ago. Um, she's in her mid-60s, um, was just feeling a little bit off, nothing very specific. But she said she'd had some new onset bloating um, and that she was just, she, she said that she was feeling her clothes were a bit tighter, but she didn't think she'd put on any weight and she certainly hadn't been eating more and just felt generally a bit off and not quite right. Nothing very specific going on for two or three months um, obviously she was a sort of patient that immediately made me a bit concerned that she might have an ovarian cancer just because she had new onset IBS type symptoms and nothing much else she hadn't she wasn't somebody that we'd seen very frequently she came in fairly infrequently so I did CA125 organised the ultrasound simultaneously which I do I don't know whether you do I do yes yeah um, and the CA125 came back raised and the ultrasound showed a large complex cyst um, and both of them suggested that she was referred on the two-week wait. She's been referred um, and is just going through the process of actually having further investigations. But I sort of felt she was a, she was a fairly clear one. Um, she absolutely fitted in with the nice guidelines, you know, new onset 
IBS symptoms um, in somebody who was postmenopausal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about that she'd put some weight on. A really good question I find is um, about dress sizes because often they might say something like, I've always been a 10, but I've been having to, um, I'm now only fitting into 12s and 14s. And that's a subtle change, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's, yeah, it's because I think weight is really difficult, isn't it? Yeah. I think that, you know, you see lots of people, don't you, say they've lost weight and they've gained weight and you weigh them and they're exactly the same as they've always been. But I think you're right, dress size is a slightly different way of measuring things. And obviously not with ovarian cancer, but with, with the male, um, if they present with any kind of abdominal blating, it's to do with the extra notch on their belt is the other thing as well that we ask. Um, yeah, as you say, postmenopausal bloating, um, getting full um, early after eating. Um, and you mentioned about IBS. We'll touch on this a little bit later, but IBS is such a common presentation in general practice, but not so much with postmenopause? I think it's the new onset, isn't it? So I think there are lots of postmenopausal women who have IBS, but often it's they'll come in and they, they've had it for years. Whereas actually, I think this lady hadn't had anything previously. It was a new onset of symptoms. And that was what immediately raised the alarm bells. I think it's more difficult, you know, we might talk about this a bit later on, in patients who've got a long history of IBS, because there's nothing to say that they're not going to get ovarian cancer either. Um, But it is more difficult, somebody like this who comes in and says, you know, the last two or three months I've had this, I've never had it before. It's a fairly straightforward thought process, isn't it? And with IBS, we we can also think about bowel cancer cancer as a potential, particularly if um, change in bowel habit, which again can be IBS, bloating, which can also be. Would you suggest for our listeners to maybe go down the colorectal two-week route or just because bowel cancer is more common? What, what, what do you think about that with, with almost just IBS symptoms? I suppose, I mean, I think we'll talk about this at some point in the podcast. Is it, I suppose the other thing is to think now that we have the availability of doing fit, if she had altered bowel habit as well as abdominal pain, bloating, or even just with without, I think doing the fit is another test that you can do. So I think probably over the la- next few years, my practice will change from doing CA125 and ultrasound with some other bloods, you know, to check whether or not she's anemic, um, to actually adding in a fit test as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that'd be good practice. Um, and you mentioned about the CA125, which we have available now in, in primary care. Tell me about the CA125 and some of the pitfalls. Oh, well, I remember, this is one of the big impacts, when I because you did the ovarian cancer module, didn't you? Um, and this was one of the things that probably scared me most from the module was that actually... 25% of ovarian cancers don't have a raised CA125. And, you know, I, we we talk about this, we talk about the false negative chest x-rays, which I was completely aware of. I wasn't aware of that. Um, and I think that's probably influenced my practice, and whether it's influenced yours, just to do the ultrasound at the same Absolutely. time. So if you've got this feeling that actually this patient may have ovarian cancer, I would suggest you do them both together. Because the other thing as well, CA125 can be raised for other reasons. A whole host, I'm hoping. I don't know whether this is, might be putting Alan totally oh. on the spot in the medical student. and uh, <laughs> much, done cl- the much closer to a medical student <laughs> way than the rest of us. I can't remember that many other causes of CA125, but we can. I'm sure we can look them up. Alan, 
Do you know any? <laughs> not, off, not off the top of my head. That's fine. No. Ellen, are you happy to go and have a look at that off mic and get back to us with some key information? Of course, I will look that up now. Okay, so with the case with Sylvia, I think that gut feeling that you had that actually this was a fairly barn door, unfortunately, that, that she was presenting with red flag symptoms for ovarian cancer. And it looks like, you know, she she's now being on the right pathway for being treated for that. Yeah, you, but your case a few weeks ago was more difficult, yeah, it was wasn't a, it? it? Yeah, it was actually about... It, it was slightly... I think I told you about it a couple of weeks ago, but it was about six months ago of of a, a lady of 36 who was a new patient, really. She just moved with her young family um, into the area. And she also had fairly vague symptoms of ongoing um, bloating, getting full after eating. She had a, um, a 10-month-old, so she actually thought it was pregnancy weight she couldn't get rid of. But she'd actually seen t- two other of my colleagues in the last three weeks because she tried buscapan, she tried peppermint tea, she tried the things that we try for IBS. But she was she was concerned and and I wanted to, to really understand her family history. Um, and she told me that her, her mum had had breast cancer in her early 40s and her maternal aunt um, had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer actually in her mid-20s, which was really unusual. So she had a really strong family history. She was... She was very breast aware. She really, you know, she she really examined every month and things. Um, but she, when I heard about this significant family history, I did start to think she's young, but is there something? And I did similar to you. I uh, did a, an urgent CA125 on the day, did a, a full host of bloods and sent her for a transvaginal ultrasound. And um, it unfortunately did come back with an ovarian cancer diagnosis. And since then, she has now been referred to the genetics team and she's now being looked at whether she um, there is a genetic link to this. Are you aware of the, of the BRCA1, BRCA2s? I'm aware of the link, but I think that I am probably not as good as I should be about asking about family history. I don't. It isn't one of my routine questions I mean it used to be when I, a long time ago when I was a medical student I used to go through the whole yeah. list of things that you were supposed to ask but I don't routinely ask about family history but the more we do and the more we talk about things and the more links that become apparent um, I think that it probably should be much more just one of those things that I always ask Absolutely. And, and, you know, when we're talking about the BRCA, and I don't know, Ellen, if you want to chip in with with anything to do with the, the BRCA 1 and 2, but actually it's as high as 15 to 20 percent of, of ovarian cancers is hereditary. So and particularly we know when young people are being diagnosed, there may be a hereditary element. And I think a big thing that we take away from us chatting is are these kind of educational nuggets, ask about family history because actually it could put you down a a different questioning route. I mean, as far as the the BRCA, there's been quite a lot in the celebrity world, Angelina Jolie, and she she made it public talking about that. Are you you aware of this, Ellen? Is this something that's being taught about and, um, yeah? 
I certainly, um, I mean, I'm very aware of that Angina Jolie effect, and I yeah. think patients are quite aware of the risk, the hereditary risk of breast cancer. Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure there is as much public awareness that that also give confers a risk for ovarian cancer. Yeah, and I think other thing we sometimes. I don't think I quite picked up on it at medical school. Maybe they did teach it and it just didn't get stuck in my brain, but is to ask about, um, you know, paternal history of Absolutely. prostate and, yeah. and GI cancer as well. So BRCA does confer some risk to GI cancer yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and I that I think would is a maybe less less known, but certainly the, the hereditary nature of breast cancer. I think I get, I've certainly seen patients who have, come in with concerns about their risk of breast cancer. Absolutely. And I think you make a really good point about the paternal history as well, um, or, you know, maternal, but the the, the, me, the men in, in the family, because prostate is, is involved, I think, with the BRCA2. And there's also certain cohorts of patients. So in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, actually, one in 100 are um, have got a, um, a BRCA. So, um, so it's really important to also look at ethnicity and ask about that as well. And I suppose there's that thing as well, isn't there, about making sure your family history is fairly rigorous and clear because, you know, if somebody had a maternal grandmother who had breast cancer in their 70s and a paternal aunt who had ovarian cancer in their 50s, that probably doesn't in- yeah. in confer any increased risk. So again, you know, going back to the Gateway C module that you did, there's a, quite a good bit in there with one of the geneticists where you talk about how to take um, and record a family history, which I think is quite a useful thing to do because we don't want to give people increased anxiety if they don't have an increased risk, but we do want to identify them. And if we don't ask, we'll never know. Absolutely. And these pedigree diagrams that we talk about during the Gateway Gateway C module, um, it's if we have a very clear understanding of their family history, then we can refer potentially in parallel to the geneticist, the genetics clinic, and they're more likely to be seen in triage if you if you have a, a more concise, detailed history. Did this lady have um, a long-standing IBS his, um, history? So it's interesting. I mean, she she mentioned that during stressful times, she had IBS-type symptoms. So she used the example of A-levels that she used to, that it was almost her stress trigger. But there was she'd never really seen us about it, so she'd always managed it herself. One of her starting, and, and um, my colleague had written it in, in the EMIS notes, had said she thought this was a trigger of her IBS because it was similar-ish um, to what she's had, but she'd never actually seen anybody about it. Because I think that brings in, doesn't it, one of the concerns that we always have is that if somebody's got a diagnosis of IBS yeah. and it's coded as IBS, it's very easy to assume she's got a new baby. She's, you know, I, I don't know whether it's, I can't remember whether it was her first or her second her child. Her second child, yeah. So, she, you know, she's probably very busy. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to assume, isn't it, that all of the symptoms just go, oh, well, yeah, she's yeah. young and it's stressful. And so what, can you remember what made you think differently about this and not think oh well you know. well I think it was the the third time she'd been in in a, in a matter of kind of two and a half weeks she tried IBS type remedies so she'd been um, she'd cut out a lot of food groups she'd tried um, over-the-counter buscapan she'd been drinking peppermint tea and all these things she said normally helps so with her coming for the third time and then but you're absolutely right, it had almost been coded as 
IBS. And this is the thing we, we harp on about, don't we, Sarah, that actually the coding element can be helpful in some ter- in s- sometimes, but actually in other times it can deflect what is going on because you almost just carry it on. So almost needed a fresh pair of eyes. And with the with the family history and with her not getting better with, with these particular things, I just started to think about other differentials. And I suppose if you hadn't asked about the family history... Mm. How, it's difficult to know, isn't it, how concerned you might have been and whether you were, what you would have done. I mean, I suppose she would presumably have come back. Yeah, I think I think we probably would have gone down um, kind of a scan point of view at some point, ultrasound abdo pelvis. But would I have done it as an urgent? Maybe not. So the family history was was really important. But but again, I think as we do this more and more, we're we're seeing patients who are younger who are fit and well and they're getting these difficult diagnoses that actually you need to have a an open mind and we have to safety net and we have to actually say and I would have said that to her if you're no better in two weeks I want you to come back to me I would have even made her an appointment and cancel it if you're better but this is what we have to do with patients that you've just got a bit of a niggle that they're coming back and there's something going on and and unfortunately for her it was actually um significant diagnosis. I think that one of the things that I was thinking about this as I was driving here thinking one of the things that actually is really important is just to think about other things so um, I would say you know just chatting before we started the podcast about you know if you see a child with a fever you've almost before you do anything you've decided you're going to work out whether or not they've got meningitis and then sometimes you immediately decide I'm not worried about this child at all but if not if you are still a bit concerned. You'll work through a whole series of things, but you'll have thought of the, that at the very outset, the most serious thing. Similarly with chest pain, you'll think about, is that, this an MI? Then you yeah. might think, is this a pneumothorax? Yeah. That sort of thing. I think that we need to do that more with other things that could be symptoms of cancer and sort of say, oh, this is an IBS, but could it be a bowel yeah. cancer? Could it be an ovarian cancer? And then work to exclude it yeah. rather than saying, oh, it's IBS. Absolutely. And I, and I think, unfortunately, particularly with ovarian cancer, it used to be termed the silent killer, which we don't really like to use anymore. And I know a lot of gynaecologists don't like to use this. But when I was chatting um, on the module with Professor Jason, and he said something that I always think about, the pelvis has got a lot of room so things can move around. And if you have a big ovarian mass sitting there well actually things move away from it as in bowel bladder uterus there's room for it to to expand without the symptoms presenting till quite late if you compare that to the head to the brain the smallest amount of change pressure um, will show symptoms so a brain tumor even if it's very small may cause pressure type symptoms and then you actually present with that but actually, with pelvic changes, pelvic cysts, pelvic masses, um, ovarian cancers, actually it can be significantly large, significantly advanced until actually symptoms present. And that's always the difficulty with ovarian cancer. So, I mean, they're often overlooked. Um, and so we just need to try to get to diagnose ovarian cancer at an earlier stage. Yeah, and I think that, it, you know, these women are unlikely to have changes to their periods because the ovarian cancers don't tend to absolutely or certainly you know it's not anything that's going to help you particularly if they've got changes to their periods so I think it and a lot of them as we said a lot of them are postmenopausal, and they're unlikely to have bleeding so it, it is difficult and I think it's just having that high index of suspicion 
probably accepting that the tests aren't 100% effective and doing them simultaneously and as you say just safety netting. Absolutely because actually just going back to the IBS thing which we see so often in general practice um, a third of the population have some form of IBS so um, we have quite a difficult job. We do. Ellen was there anything that you wanted to ask query mention? Yeah, so you said um, they're kind of moving away from speaking about it as the, the silent killer. Yeah. It, is there, what, what's kind of the reasoning behind that? I mean, my understanding was that it's because it's not actually silent. It's just that the symptoms are vague. It's not that there are no symptoms. Is that right or have I got that wrong? What do you think, Sarah? I think you... I think you're probably right. Um, I think, yeah, I think when we spoke, when we had the face-to-face event and we had the gynaecologist came, she said that upper GI symptoms are something that you should take seriously as an early indicator, didn't she? She said that feeling of getting full quickly um, and dyspepsia also sometimes are a, a, an early indicator of ovarian cancer but also as you know it, it is really difficult isn't it because it's they are all really common and it is quite difficult to know quite when to investigate I, I think it's all down to the safety netting and sort of a lot of things will get better in a week or two but if they haven't then we do need to think again yeah yeah. And I think that you're absolutely right, Ellen, about the silent, whether it's vague. And I, and I think the scaremongering with the killer bit, it's, it's um, you know, when you think of the killer, I think I, I've got thinking about, you know, a big shark or something. You know, it's like a silent killer coming to get you. Um, it's so, uh, <laughs> sorry, or a whale, <laughs> don't know. But um, it's, uh, yeah, I think they wanted to get away from the word killer because it's, it's, um, it's not great terminology and but I just wanted to just mention something because you know I like my fun facts I suppose it's not really a fact it's more of something that I heard on another podcast in ancient Greek times that they used to they were fascinated by the human but particularly women's anatomy and um, they felt that the uterus was almost just floating around on its own in the body and unless it was weighed down by child or by moistened male seed, then it would float around. Apologies for using that, but that's exactly how it was um, written in, in the in the ancient Greek textbooks. And if it wasn't weighed down, it would float around, and um, and it would go even as kind of as high as high as the heart. That's what they thought. So that's why it was really important for the fertility of women to make sure that it was weighed down. So, so anyway, be perpetually pregnant. Perpetually pregnant or trying to get pregnant, yes. Um, so, um, yes, what a thought. So, as far as the CA125, Alan, have you managed to find anything? I have, yes, and I, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'm going to be um, helping with your, your fear about it being not a very good test. Um, <laughs> here are some of the things that have been listed uh, as things that can also elevate your CA125. So, <laughs> epithelial ovarian cancer, so we know that one, fallopian tube cancers, endometrial cancers, endometriosis, lung cancers, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, normal pregnancy. Yeah, pregnancy, said. yeah. Uh, pelvic inflammatory disease. Menstruation can raise it. Wow. Which is 
not very helpful. Um, pancreatitis, cholecystitis, cirrhosis, okay. um, peritonitis. So the list is very, very okay. long. So okay, it almost feels like a sort of and anyone else who knows me type of thing, doesn't it? I think yeah. with the CA125 also visits significantly high. Sometimes if they're kind of bobbing around the 40 mark, I'd, I'd maybe repeat it and something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think if you've got the ultrasound as well, though, I yeah. think that, that gives you a lot more indication, doesn't it? D- just um, as being Mrs Nice... <laughs> Mrs. Nice I mean, yeah, that's not meant as a compliment either, is it? Um, what what do, what does the Nice guidelines actually say about should we be doing the scan and the CA one two five together, or should one be done first? I think, I think the CA one two five is supposed to be done yeah, first, I but so. I think that practically speaking, um, I would I think most people will do them simultaneously. So Sarah's name is now Mrs. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I think the two cases have shown that um, it was more of a barn door, but again, it it was a a case that we would see uh, more frequently, our first case um, with the postmenopausal and the bloating and actually not diagnosing IBS at such an older person. You need to start thinking about other differentials, including ovarian cancer. And the second case, which was more tricky, was our younger 36-year-old with a significant family history. So I think it's important that we wrap this podcast up by talking about some of the key clinical points. Sarah, are you happy to start with the first one? I think it's just that awareness, isn't it? It's thinking about ovarian cancer, particularly in women over 50 with new onset IBS symptoms, but being aware of it in younger women as well. Um, and, neg- and, and I think that, you know, if you've seen a patient who you've has got some um, bowel symptoms and you've done a fit and the symptoms are persisting, then I think it's important to think about ovarian cancer as well and to go and ahead and investigate. So, and just to say, with our fit test, they also suggest that we do a CA125 as part of the bloods. I don't know whether it's just in our area. Certainly in our area, if you are referring on a non-site specific vague symptoms pathway in the bloods that are suggested beforehand a CA125 and a fit will come up Great, okay, so I just wanted to reiterate about the CA125 it is a great test but it also has its limitations including that long list that Ellen gave us which is basically every medical diagnosis um, but also it can be normal in 25% of, of ovarian cancers but hopefully by doing the scan in parallel that will um, help us out. The CA125 is non-specific uh, so it can be raised by by lots of other conditions and also non-gynecological causes including I mean you mentioned other kind of cancers like lung and colorectal. And I think the other thing that I think that's really important from your case picking up on is the um, importance of the family history. And if 15 to 20% of ovarian cancers are hereditary, then we need to be asking patients. It just, it's, it's that building up of a picture, isn't it? It's getting all the information together. And this is a key bit of information that I think it's one of the things that I need to change and ask even more often than I do. Well, I don't ask it that often, but I need to ask very frequently. And finally, you're never too young. So saying what Sarah's saying, particularly with younger patients, ask about family history, think outside the box, think about all possible differentials and safety net and um, arrange to see the patient with a certain amount of time if you are concerned about them. Okay. So thank you for listening today to this podcast from Gateway C. Alongside this podcast, we have a free ovarian module for healthcare professionals, which is available on the Gateway C website. All references to the studies and guidelines we've discussed will be in our show notes. 
We really look forward to seeing you next time on the podcast where we'll be discussing lower GI cancers. And I also want to thank our producers, Louise Harbord from Gateway C and Joe Newsome from Rethink Audio. Before we go, I wanted to just clear up and discuss the positive predictive value, which is something that we touch on in a few of the episodes. The positive predictive value was used to determine the threshold to encourage clinicians to refer on for a suspected cancer pathway or for urgent tests. And this was agreed at 3%. For more information, we have attached the link via the show notes. And this is through the NICE guidelines. And I would encourage all listeners to have a look at this and understand this in more detail. Please do press the follow button so you can get the podcast direct to your feed. And we'd love it if you share this podcast with your friends or colleagues. It really helps spread the word. 